analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. It looks like a lovely day shaping up here in Kamloops, some blue sky. Uh, not so conducive to going outside, though, as a negative 20 or so out there right now. Uh, we got a great show coming your way. We're going to talk about uh, the legal cannabis situation here in Kamloops with the city's Dave Jones. We'll also touch base with Kamloops Search and Rescue. Of course, a disappointing call yesterday to suspend the search for that missing Merrick Cowboy, uh, uh, Ben Steiner. So we'll get into that. And we'll also talk about the psychology of jumping from elementary school into high school and some possible issues there. But first up, we're going to talk about the TCC and what, uh, what the future has in store for that with uh, Byron McCorkle, who is the city's community protective services uh, manager for the city of Kamloops. Byron, good morning. Welcome. How are you? Good morning. Uh, a little chilly. Yeah, you're wearing a light jacket, my friend. What, well, what's well, going I'm on? born and raised Saskatchewan, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's not cold enough yet. <laughs> okay, man. Uh, TCC, obviously a beautiful facility. Uh, it's a crown jewel here in Kamloops and probably a pretty big component of the tournament capital. So uh, as you look at that thing, what, what does the future hold? What do, you, what do you see there in the next 5 to 10 to 20 years? Well, what we were talking about... Uh, lately is that we've got a lot of maintenance to be done. Obviously, the building's at an age now uh, that uh, we need to look at the roof of the pool. It was built in 93, so we've, we've been planning for that for about four or five years now. Uh, and through that, we've also decided that the uh, siding on the pool is a, is a product that was used in the 80s. It's not really well, um, it hasn't really lasted well on any pool that it's been on, so we're, we're due to replace that as well. Mm. Uh, but in the course of that conversation, we then have to the opportunity to look at what new things we might add. So the, there's a little plaza between the pool and the field house. We've talked about adding into to that a, a two-story facility um, that would allow for expansion of our fitness opportunities, move the building around a little bit, address some of our uh, population issues in there as far as the way people come and go. And right. uh, as well, we looked at an entrance on the back of the pool that would allow us to do competitions where the spectators would stay on the bleacher side instead of going through the middle of 700 swimmers uh, <laughs> in a major meet uh, by walking along the deck. Um, small little things like that. And then on the other side, we, we know we need to replace the turf and we know we have the uh, track to do outside and the big thing out there is we've been for about 20 years now looking for an indoor um, facility of some sort to do uh, soccer and, and and field sports in the winter uh, so we've been talking about doing a uh, potentially a dome over top of uh, the track and the field out there and and it looks like that's possible uh, that so now it's really what do we want to do next? Uh, uh, that's taking in, of course, there's a whole bunch of other things to be done in the community too. So it all has to fit into our long range plan. So what do you, as far as the TCC itself, what do you do? You listen to what the community has to say. You compile a list of things, uh, dream projects, and you just start knocking off, okay, the community feels strongly about whatever you determine to be the first item, and then you figure out a path forward. Is that how it sort of... Well, basically, that's how most of these projects go along. We, I mean, we, uh, I think it's weekly, we'll get a, a proposal from somebody to do something I mean we have pickleball who wants more courts we have you know uh, expansion of hockey we have uh, uh, lots of needs out there the performing arts center uh, yeah. there is a ton of things to be looked upon as a community grows and and really it, it becomes one of factoring things in and as we were talking earlier I mean uh, if people had said we we're going to spend a hundred million dollars uh, back in 2003 on water and wastewater and and uh, the tournament capital they would have been yelling and screaming but at the end of the day we built a water treatment plant a sewer treatment plant and a tournament capital building that now are worth over 100 million dollars uh so 
those conversations need to be had. They need to fit into our budget pro- proposals, and uh, we move on. Ideally for you, what do you, what do you think should be added to the TCC? I mean, I see talks about expanding it, adding a little bit more to the deep water side for diving competitions, things like that. In your mind, what's the next component there to really utilize that facility? Well, there's a number of factors hitting the TCC. If you think of TRU as one of our main uh, partners in the building, uh, there's a whole bunch of residential that's going in there. When the building was built, that wasn't there. So if, if there's upwards of a 1,000 beds being proposed, that then becomes their neighborhood gym. So we're talking with TRU about uh, how that neighborhood center might look for those residents in that area. But on top of that, you look at the building when we built it, It was we were thinking it was more around the athlete and competition. Well, now 90% of the time is just uh, the community coming in to be fit mm. and so that adds some new dimensions to it when uh, you think you got 2,000 people a day going through your front door uh, and they're all looking to do something different not the conform to I'm, I do basketball I do volleyball I'm here to you know lift weights they want to have a full experience there so that puts some challenges on our operations and it puts some challenges on our space and ultimately I think uh, you know, the dome would be a, a major improvement to our space needs in the in the winter. Uh, I mean, we're shut down for about 60 days a year for events. So the, the Joe um, citizen who is just looking to do fitness is out of the building for 60 days a wow. year, which makes it challenging if fitness is, is your core uh, way of being well. Or even for a fact, as a parent of a small guy, going up to get my kid to, to the kids' pool up totally. there, and suddenly you can't get in there. It's yeah, and it, just new dynamics like that. And um, so if we could do the dome, that allows us to let the track uh, component go outside. And it allows us to bring new people to the building, obviously, as well. But it just gives us space. And that's, I think, the biggest thing we've got a problem with in the building is as we see all these individuals coming, um, you know, we have to, to figure out where and how we address their needs. Uh, the same thing goes with the pool. We have a, what is considered fast water in the swim world. Um, but if you're going to do a, an international meet, you need a warm-up tank. And uh, I think you've been in the leisure pool there. That's our warm-up tank, right. which doesn't meet any spec- specifications at all for uh, athlete. So if we could do something out the back, um, a 25 by 25 meter pool uh, would allow us to do the warm-ups. It would also then allow us to, to address the uh, deficiencies in diving. It would also give us space for teaching which would allow us more opportunity to use the main tank which is a deep water tank which is difficult to teach in because little kids in five foot of water isn't necessarily the easiest way to learn so um, those are all just challenges that we have. Where are we on the dome? I mean I know we've been talking about this for a while banding about ideas of course associated price tags Uh, where are we on the spectrum of uh, concept to actually putting something in there? Well, we've done all the uh, the preliminary design work, and I think that's basically where we're at now. We now know that the that it could be built, um, that it would fit. The uh, suppliers are are convinced that they can do it. It would be a very large dome. Um, we're told probably the biggest in Western Canada, if not you know the country. Mm. Um, we uh, are now talking about it. As I say, we've got the turf and the track to be done, so it would look kind of silly if we did those and then all of a sudden ripped up the, the side of the track to put in the grade beam for the dome. So um, the only thing that's remaining now is, is confirming the business uh, case for it, uh, and then we'll be coming forward to council. We also have our recreation master plan going on, so we want to fit that whole uh, conversation together in June, and uh, then we're planning on coming forward to council in the next uh, budget cycle. 
So obviously one of the big things with any of these moves is the ticket price and then selling that to the taxpayer. How much in that component, whether it's the dome or whether it's um, renovations, expansions to TCC, how much does TRU factor in this when it comes to kind of settling the bill? Well, TRU has been a great partner, and, and I think that's one of the unique things about the TCC is it's located on a campus. Uh, we do have the benefit of uh, the student body using it for their athletics as well as their fitness. Um, they've been at the table from day one right when the pool. I mean, they provide us with a grant every year for their use of the pool. Um, their student body gets a student rate, obviously, to use the facility, but uh, for fitness. Um, and then their athletic department rents their space. So uh, they are a great tenant and uh, it's a great partnership. And, and as I say, we've been talking to them more about uh, this new relationship with their residents uh, that are they're coming to their campus and how does that factor into, uh, into this. And, and they're talking to their student body as well about what they might want to invest in. All right, uh, last question. Uh, TC, obviously a lovely facility. You've got some other recreational facilities sprinkled around, um, outdoor pools, things like that. But do, you, do you foresee another facility, I don't know if in scope like the TCC, but something sort of along that vein anywhere else in the city in the near future or no? Well, that's uh, kind of why we're doing the Recreation Master Plan, is to kind of decide or determine what the community's needs are. If, if I just put my recreation hat on, I know we're down a hockey rink because there used to be one on the, on, on the um, TTS lands, and, and uh, it's not there anymore. So that capacity has been lost. So we, we are talking about a hockey rink. We probably need two. Uh, we would probably be talking about gymnasium space. There's a growing need for volleyball and basketball, and, and uh, you know, as adults age... Uh, I'm on that side of the boomer <laughs> side. We, we go back to what we know to get fitness. And, yeah. uh, and so those are some of the, the pressures we're seeing. Pickleball um, has come out of nowhere and is a very uh, interesting sport, uh, very demanding as far as what their facilities needs are. Uh, as far They'd like to see it now, not tomorrow. So those are some conversations that are coming forward. Um, but I guess that's just all part of the planning process. You just have to time it all out and evolve with uh, the needs and, and uh, what your build, budget can afford. All right. Uh, aging cities is a whole other banana. And <laughs> we'll have to have you back in to talk about that. Yep. My wife's a planner, so I get all sorts of interesting details about all the minutia as our population gets older, for sure. Uh, Byron, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. And uh, we'll be fascinated to see what goes on up at the TCC, whether it's doming the stadium or, or whatnot up there. Uh, great city facility. Perfect. Thanks very much. There we go. Community Protective Services Manager Byron McCorkle will take a quick break. Uh, still with the city of Kamloops on the other side as Dave Jones joins us to talk legal cannabis. More on Radio NL after this. Local news now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined by the city's business license inspector. Inspector. <laughs> inspector, that's what it is. Yeah. Never mind. I thought I messed that up. Anyway, Dave Jones, how are you, man? Good morning. How are you today? I am well. Beautiful day out there. Eh? It's gorgeous. You know, how was the, how was the walk over? It was good. <laughs> it was a little cold, but you know, we're still survived. So. Yeah, you shake the ice cubes out of your hair and carry exactly. on. Make sure it's dry before you leave. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, in October, we legalized cannabis. Uh, this city has been well ahead of the curve, as our mayor describes it. Uh, getting the first government store up the hill running right away. We've got, as I understand it, nine approved applications to date and four more coming? Yes, four more coming on February the 12th to go in front of council. Okay. We have the one, the one of the 
one of the cannabis stores that went to council on uh, late October. Um, they've got its uh, conditional approval last couple of weeks ago. So 399 uh, Tronk Hill Road, uh, the Shores Cannabis Store should be open a whole mid-February for the okay. first private store. Uh how you? What's your gauge of the provincial approval system? I mean, I, we're, you guys are approving them at a pretty good clip at council, but then they got to pass the provincial hurdle and then do all their stuff there. Is that going more or less according to pace in your estimation or no? Well, I was down last, a couple of weeks ago, down to my JCCR meeting, which is part of the UBCM uh, task forces being part of the, the whole operations there. And we got a report from the provincial government. You know, they had a little over 400 applications and they're going through the applications as quick as possible, getting them out to the communities for the referral. And again, that last part of the provincial referral for that fit and financial is uh, time consuming and it's going to take some time. Uh, speaking to him, the owner from the, the Shores Cannabis, he said he it was the first application with the province, so application number one, mm. and it pretty well was a six-month process. So wow. very similar to the good old days with the liquor license, six <laughs> months would be something very similar. Obviously, with this new culture and making sure that the right people are in the business, uh, the province is going to do their due, 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 due diligence to make sure that the right people are in that business. Okay. Um, my By the way, the attorney, I was talking to the attorney general a little while ago, and he was telling me this, the it's the um, the process they're going through to weed out any link to organized crime that's really holding things up there. So I guess fair enough to some degree. But. Well, I think that's the important part to realize. You know, there's they're looking to see who's is a, who's got an investment in that, and that's a big part of it to make sure that, you know, as far as the whole federal mandate, provincial mandate is to try to, to take some of that criminal element out of it. So they want to do their due diligence to see who's supporting or who is operating these retail stores. Uh, as far as where they are right now, we're doing sort of a downtown, uptown cluster, North Shore along Tronquil. Uh, those seem to be the heavily favored and and obvious reasons why. Are we seeing anything or will we see anything, say, in the sort of farther reaches, your west sides, your valley views, places like that or no? Well, I think, as you mentioned, you know, the uh, Tronquil corridor and the downtown corridor were the big zoned areas. A, a lot more properties were available. And I'll say the easy fruit pickings. So, mm-hmm. you know, those stores that got picked off and obviously they're the ones up front. I think you'll start seeing some of those exterior parts of town will be start coming forward now. Uh, so there is some other properties that aren't, you know, in the downtown core of the Tronquil. I'll think in the next few months you'll see those come to fruition. You know, we already have the one in Hillside Drive. We already have the one out in, out in Valley View there. So they're starting to stretch out now. Um, the, there is some exclusion zone. I mean, they, they can't be near a school. They can't be near certain places. I, what's the are there, what's the relation to each other? Is there any there or no? So the exclusion is it can't be within 150 meters of the property line uh, of that store. So like out in Valley View, uh, the, you know, the concerns would be maybe that store is too close to, to the Valley View Secondary, but mm. it goes from property line to the store, and that's 150 meters. Uh, the other proximity measurement we had was 150 meters from, sorry, 100 meters from door to door of a store so originally you know we took it before the council we wanted 150 uh, but the council recommended that 100 meters from door to door so we've had one come in where it was too close to another one and you know we've advised the province that we can't entertain that application at this time okay so are we getting into a place now where we're seeing enough of them pop up that you're you know you're looking at the different exclusion zones and it's getting trickier to kind of okay if i want to go downtown i'm really relegated to this little narrow section because of these different bubbles are we seeing that now or no that's correct so now you're going to have people doing their little more research to find out you know other parts of town we have the c5 and the c1s where it's a little bit smaller properties and those are the ones where you're going to see like i don't 
Fulton Valley View or again out in uh, up in Hillside Drive there you know those areas there so the, the availability of lease space is a little less so you're not going to see a whole bunch of stores in those areas. Um, we talk a lot about stores uh, retail outlets are you guys seeing anything on the other side as far as production someone coming in wanting a business license to set up a you know a big grow operation somewhere where there's some some ag land or no? Well we do have two applications in uh, from the federal government and with the the owners for two commercial grows. Uh, listening to what we had a presentation by the federal government while we were down in Vancouver. Again, now it's the multi-cultivators, mini cultivators and processors and stuff. So there's been a lot of inquiries about that. And I think that takes a lot less land. Uh, then people have the opportunity to kind of get that craft growing so that their own special little cannabis there. So we've had lots of inquiries. We've also had inquiries, and of course the federal government hasn't quite finished their um, research and haven't rolled out all the regulations on the edible part so right. so again there's been some quite a few inquiries about that manufacturing of those edibles so again you know with that new regulations to making sure you know what kind of how much thc can be in it what the package is going to be look like how is it going to uh, be marketed and stuff so that's you know the federal government's still looking for uh, input up to the february 20th on that so we've had lots of inquiries on that as well yeah, and I assume that will change the dynamic a little bit once that whole package comes out. That's correct. You know, obviously, you know, obviously staying with the federal mandate, so not, you know, not being available to the youth, not encouraging youth how to, to keep it safe, you know, child safe packaging, labeling, all that good stuff. So, mm. again, sticking with their original mandate on cannabis itself, they're still looking at that part of it. Yeah, and for people listening, by the way, who may not know, edibles wasn't included in the original legalization. Uh, I believe the government has uh, either this year or next to actually tackle the legalization part of that aspect of the deal. Yeah, they announced, they said uh, before October 17th, 2019, so uh, they kind of promised that it would be uh, within a year of that uh, legalization. Yeah. Uh, last question for you, Dave. Uh, we've got uh, the government store up the hill, but we've also got one coming for Lansdowne Village, I believe, and another one on Tronk Hill. What's the status of those two? Well, the last I spoke to them, there was uh, the one on Lansdowne Village. There was just a, a little bit of a discussion about there's part of the part of the area they were using. Uh, they needed to do block off or do some renovations from that part. Uh, the North Shore, I understand, you know, they're, again, they're just going through uh, a whole bunch of other communications with other, with other communities across uh, B.C. So last I'd heard they had, had been contacted and, you know, had made arrangements for eight other stores within the province. So obviously they, you know, yeah, we maybe want a couple more here, but I think it's important that the province looks at some other communities and makes sure that cannabis is legally available in other communities across B.C. too. So uh, I wouldn't say I know exactly, but I would hope, you know, sometime within the first half of 2019, we had another provincial store here. Oh, so we're going to cut into our tourism numbers if the government stores start popping up elsewhere. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not, we're not, what are we, Campsterdam for a reason, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, last word to you, going well, though? Or uh, It is. It's very, it's, you know, it's going well. I think, you know, again, having being ahead of the curve, you know, obviously the people across Canada and outside of the Canada are really interested in Kamloops. Um, and I think, you know, it just shows that people are willing to take a chance and, and looking at this new business venture, uh, but not only from the retail side, but the cultivation side and manufacturing side. Perfect. Uh, Dave, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in the studio. Appreciate that. Take care. We'll just keep rolling them out there. <laughs> <It> sounds good. <laughs> Business License Inspector Dave Jones, and we'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show on Radio NL and Kamloops Search and Rescue on the other side. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News.
is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined in studio by Camelot Search and Rescue spokesperson Jen Stone. Good morning, Jen. How are you? Good morning, Shane. Not doing too bad. Excellent. Uh, okay, so obviously I wish there was sort of a happier topic here, but uh, why don't we rewind the clock? Last weekend, uh, Ben Tyner, who is a sort of well-known cowboy from the Merritt area, I believe he's a Wisconsin native? I believe Wyoming. Wyoming native, right. Thank you. And it was a W state. Um, he apparently went into the backcountry for some purpose somewhere uh, on Monday his riderless horse comes out is found and that sparks uh, a seven day search effort which um, I don't want to use the word ended but as of yesterday uh, the search was suspended so maybe just recount sort of from the beginning to, to where we are now the area that was searching and some of the problems and sort of what you guys had, had were, were doing I know there was not just Kamloops SAR but uh, SAR teams from all over the province so uh, how did it all unfold? So it started early in the morning with Ben's horse being located by a resident from the area. And then uh, they searched for a bit. Once they realized whose horse it was, they were looking around. When nothing came of that, RCMP were let known that there was somebody missing. They had found the horse. And then Nicola Valley Search and Rescue was called in shortly after we were asked to come help. So the first night on Monday night, we were all looking. We had a couple dozen different searchers out there overnight along with drone teams. And we had Pep Air come out in the morning and Air 4 from RCMP. So it was a really strong search for the first few days just from more local teams. As the search continued into the week, we ended up bringing in a lot more teams from around the province. And by Saturday, we had well over 100 search and rescue volunteers on scene for the, for the task. And then come Sunday, we uh, had another really strong presence out there. And it just it got to the point where it was getting quite dangerous for our searchers and with uh, RCMP and some of the search managers that were on scene made the very tough decision that they had to stand down the task for now. Yeah. Um, how confident were you guys that you were searching? I mean, I, I assume it was sort of a broad swath of area. The only indicator, unless there's something missing, would be sort of the area where the horse was found and then sort of backtracking. Um, were you guys confident you were sort of looking in the right chunk of, of, of the woods or no? It's always hard to know exactly where to look. Uh, in this case, we did have where the horse was located, so that was used as a last known point. And from there, the search managers use all kinds of search theory to figure out an area. So we were searching Swakum Ridge, uh, just north of Merritt, and needless to say, uh, over seven days and up to 100 searchers on task at a time, it, we covered a very large area. Of course, our searchers were also in addition to all of the volunteers from the community that were out as well. There's a lot from the Lower Nicola Indian Band as well as just local ranchers. And they were out on their horses searching the area as well. Uh, it was great to have those extra eyes on the ground. Of course, when you're looking for horse tracks it, and you've got people out on horses, it does make it a little bit more difficult to make sure you're following the right tracks of the of Ben's horse as well. Yeah. Did you guys have an expert tracker out there at all, or how did that sort of work out? So I, don't, we, I don't know if you guys are trained in that or not. Or We do have some members in the province that are professional trackers. So there was some tracking out there for the horse. We could only go back so far between uh, the rancher's horses, because, I mean, some of them were out there even before we knew he was missing. So those tracks came in as well as wild horses. So they were having to distinguish between the wild horse tracks and ranch horse tracks. And uh, 
got to a certain point and we're able to get so far and it just got to a point where the tracks were quite muddied up because there's so many together but we also had out dog teams that were searching as well uh, in addition to drones and the helicopters as I said and our hundreds of ground search and rescue members so between everybody looking for clues and looking for tracks unfortunately no sign of Ben was found beyond his horse. What was it like for for everybody uh, yesterday when the search was suspended I know I mean you guys do a job where there's an interesting psychology either have a great search outcome and the thrill of like okay we've saved a life or brought somebody home or whatever the deal is and you have the case like Ryan Stuka in Sun Peaks, where you have this lingering question of why, what happened, where's there's no resolution, uh, and then you know, sort of, we don't know how this is going to resolve itself yet. But what was the psychology like for people yesterday when when the call was made to suspend things? It was definitely very difficult. You could see the faces, a lot of disappointment. People were coming out. The whole idea behind search and rescue is you want to go out and help. So while when you look at it, we did help. We figured out where he wasn't. It's still very difficult to leave knowing we weren't able to bring him home to his family. Yeah. Um, Mr. Tyner, as I understand it, is some kind of bush savvy. He's not a stranger to the backwoods. Is there, you know, is there some hope that maybe he could still find a way out on his own? Or is the thought now that you're looking at recovery, if, if anything, at some point? I, really hard to say at this point. RCMP are continuing their investigation, and unfortunately we're not always privy to all the information that they have. I, I mean, obviously there's always hope. There have been cases where people have been out for a month and come out alive, but we also have to prepare ourselves that if we go in, there's a good chance that we are looking at a body recovery as well, because that is a very different psychologically how you have to go into that kind of search. Yeah, yeah I can only imagine. So, uh, as I understand, I know you and I chatted really briefly yesterday, but just to sort of recap, um, suspended, um, RCMP is keeping the file open, but you guys are standing by should the phone ring, a footprint's found, some indication, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're back out there looking, potentially. Yeah, with any search, when RCMP makes the decision to stand us down, they continue their investigation, and we're always ready at any point. If they get another tip in or any clues surface, we're definitely ready to get back out there as soon as they need us. What was the weather conditions like for you guys? I know, I mean, down here in Kamloops, it's been pretty mild since about, you know, Saturday night. The temperatures plunged, obviously, but what were you guys facing in the sort of Squaxin Ridge area? On day one, so last Monday, so a week ago, it was already dropping down to minus 20 in that area, so definitely a lot cooler than what we're experiencing here. Luckily, during the day, it was getting very similar temperatures to what we were experiencing in Kamloops, so it was more mild for the searchers during the rest of the week. And uh, no snow, which makes a big difference when you're looking for clues on the ground as well. So the weather was quite cooperative in that way. Our members are all dressed and prepared to be out in the cooler weather. So that doesn't impact us quite as much. But going into Saturday night and then Sunday dropping that much, it, it takes a toll on everybody. It was quite cold out there. And the poor dogs that were out there searching definitely were not enjoying themselves quite as much as they normally would on a search. You were mentioning to me that uh, one of the factors in suspending was the fact it's been seven days and nights you guys are out there around the clock and there was exhaustion and potentially the risk of members getting injured is that sort of a, a usual factoring in in any given search or, or is that sort of you know you judge that depending on situations and circumstances or is that a formula you know on day 70 reassess or is that sort of a running sort of target it's 
definitely changes from search to search. It depends on the information that we have and if we know the persons in the area for sure, if we're looking for certain clues that come up that lead us to a certain point. In this case, because nothing had surfaced combined with thousands of hours of search time already put in, uh, exhaustion and uh, our searcher safety was definitely the biggest factor in this one, but had it been a situation where a bunch of clues were found to lead us to believe that he was in the immediate area, the search very likely would have continued into this week, regardless of the weather. Okay, well, hopefully something will spark you guys getting back out there and finding Mr. Tyner sooner rather than later, but uh, we'll have to see what happens. We don't know what that is. Uh, before I let you go, how are you guys doing on finding a new headquarters? Is there some progress there or no? We're still hopeful that we'll have something this year. We've got a few irons in the fire right now and definitely hoping that we'll be able to make an announcement by the end of the year. Unfortunately, no news just yet. All right. How much does funding factor into that? Obviously, you know, you're looking for some donated land perhaps or something, but I, I mean, I assume that there may be some money at play here. So how much does the funding of overall help or hinder? Uh, it definitely is more of a hindrance right now than a help. Uh, funding becomes an issue because you need to have land in order to look at a building and a lot of the people with land want you to have a building lined up already as well so have to find a nice balance there before we can really move forward. How are you guys doing on volunteers? Volunteers are doing pretty good. Ground search and rescue training. We were able to begin last week. Uh, our, some of our members stayed back to do evening training so that we could get our new members going. Uh, they were out on the search during the day, some of them, and then would come back in the evening to do their training. And hopefully we'll be able to continue that into February and March and get those new members in. But we've got almost 50 members on paper right now, which is a, a nice balance to be at. It allowed us to go the seven days without totally tiring ourselves out too early. Yeah, perfect. Uh, Jen, always a pleasure uh, keeping our fingers crossed on the Tyner front that something happens that results in a happy ending, even though the chances are not looking good right now. But hopefully that has a resolution here some at some capacity. So. That's our hope as well. Thanks, All right. Jane. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. Uh, we'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk about the psychology of going from elementary to high school. Uh, that'll happen next right here on Radio NL. Local news now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. As we can all remember, some of us have to go a little farther back in our memories than others, but uh, it can be quite intimidating to go from elementary school up to junior high or high school, as it were, depending on uh, what is available in your community. And now uh, the University of British Columbia is diving into some research around um, whether or not that transition can expose kids to mental illness. And I assume, uh, if so, uh, what are the results and what we can do to help mitigate that? Uh, something that wasn't even a thing when I was younger, and I think it's a good step forward. Uh, joining me to talk about that is the assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at UBC, Joelle Lamolt. Good morning, Joelle. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on today. Hey, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate this. So uh, you guys are starting a look at sort of the psychological impacts, the risk of mental illness as kids transition from elementary school into sort of the high school, junior high school uh, area. Tell me a little bit about that. Give me an idea what you're looking for, how you're going to go about this thing. 
Yeah, so absolutely. Exactly as you said, we know that that transition it can be really stressful for kids, right? It's kind of like having them jump into the deep end of a swimming pool before they swim. Um, and so what we want to do is understand uh, what are some of the factors that predict uh, who will have difficulty during that transition, and actually what are some of the factors that will predict who will do well. And we want to use that information to help families and their kids. So how would you go about helping them? I mean, would it be having some resources on, on board to help? I know that, uh, for example, here in Kamloops, uh, the YMCA offers some, some mental help uh, clinics and, and sort of avenues for, for students going through that. Is it something like that or something more robust? I mean, absolutely. And one of the questions that we are hoping to answer with this study is what is the most effective way to help them, right? Uh, We don't actually completely know that yet because we don't know exactly what's putting them at risk. Uh, And we don't know what's helping other kids. So we want to first figure that out. And then once we know it, we want to, we're thinking, you know, big and small. So what could schools do? What could, um, you know, the Board of Education do? What could, uh, you know, families do? What could kids do themselves, right? So we want to think about kind of how can we help kids maybe at, at each stage, um, at each level to, to support them. What do we know about uh, sort of the mental health uh, aspect of making that jump so far? I mean, obviously, uh, somebody's identified, hey, listen, there's something here. We just have sort of a fuzzy picture and we need some clarities. But what do we know right now as you guys kind of dive further into this thing? Yeah, that's a great question. So what we know is that uh, about uh, almost 12% of kids uh, will have experienced an, a, a severe episode of depression by the end of their first year of high school. And then over the course of high school, about 40% will experience some sort of um, you know, mental health difficulty or disorder. So that's a lot, right? And, and what we also know is that the presence of these kind of early onset um, psychological difficulties puts them at greater risk for um, school difficulties, you know, academic performance difficulties, puts them at greater risk for having mental health difficulties later on in adulthood. And so what we really know right now kind of most concretely is how important it is to, um, to reach out and help these kids as early as possible. So how are you, how are you going to go about doing? I assume you you've got to have kids to to talk to and to monitor and to get some information from. Uh, is this going to be a Canadian wide thing, a province wide thing? Uh, how are you going to go out there and, and and gather up these kids and then kind of what sort of information are you looking to get from them? Yeah, well, we're starting um, focused here on BC with some support um, from. Uh, the government uh, from a, a grant from the Shirk organization, and so uh, we're very grateful. Families have already actually started participating in our research, and we're incredibly grateful to them. And what we're having them do is families will come in when kids are currently in grade seven, and uh, we kind of check out how they're doing right now in grade seven, uh, and um, assess a number of different factors here at UBC, and we then follow them over the course of. Uh, their transition to high school into grade eight. Uh, and uh, we're, you know, just checking in with them periodically. They can do a lot from home, um, and they actually only need to come back to UBC one other time um, towards the end of grade eight to um, talk to us again. So, uh, yeah, we're just we're checking out a lot of different factors. And um, uh, if anyone is interested in learning more about those details or even participating, we uh, have a website called startinghighschool.ca. 
Um, as you kind of look at a, a test group to follow for, it looks like a year or two here, how important is it to get a cross-section, you know, somebody who, you know, maybe not from a wealthy family, maybe an Indigenous family, you know, all of these things? Because I imagine there's different stresses sort of depending on your own circumstances. That is critical. It's a really important question. It's really critical to make sure that we're, um, as, as much as we can, really making an effort to represent kids in British Columbia in every sense, right? Um, and, uh, and we want to then, kind of as you alluded to, take this and apply for additional funding to roll this out, you know, kind of a, across Canada and understand um, what uh, the, the many diverse factors that affect um, this transition, both in a, in a positive way too, right, as well as uh, factors that might increase kids' stress. But um, there's so much to be learned from, uh, from every family. Do you think that, I mean, obviously you're, you're putting the building blocks of this thing together and, you know, it's a bit of a crystal ball question, but uh, do you think at the end of this in two or three, four years, whenever you kind of pull together this information and then table it, okay, here's what we've learned, do you think it's going to cause a bit of a rethink in how we make that transition from an educational perspective or no? I think it, it could. One thing that um, is unique to um, at least the majority of uh, schools here in, in um, uh the kind of British Columbia that you mentioned in your introduction was the fact that most kids are still going from elementary school to high school. And that's actually the, the group that we're focusing on right now. But what we really would like to do is understand, um, do kids transition better when they have that middle school, you know, intermediary step? Um, and so that, you know, might contribute to more global policy changes or, um, you know, as you suggested, really rethinking the educational system. And I wonder, too, about, you know, like, okay, yeah, there's going to be some very school-related stuff here. I think, you know, you wouldn't have to go too far to talk about, you know, I remember my own memories. It was very intimidating going from grade 7 to grade 8, uh, and then you run into the usual school things, the peer pressure, potential bullying, you know, the course load, all that kind of jazz. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how do you factor in the actual home life circumstance? Because there's some kids that are stressed out and dealing with mental health issues that maybe have nothing to do with school, maybe some of the behavior or symptoms comes out in the school setting, but really the the source of it is coming from not school, but from the home front. Absolutely. That's really important. Um, We know those are some of the many factors that we're assessing in this study. So we're assessing school-specific factors, like you just talked about, you know, their kind of social um, well-being and engagement, bullying, et cetera, academic pressure and how they're doing school-wise. But we're also assessing a lot about the family and the home and maybe what resources they have coming into that transition. What we know is that... um, based on a number of different kind of uh, factors that you come into stresses with, it makes it more or less likely that you're going to cope well with that independent stressor. So, uh, you know, it's quite possible that some of the resources that we really um, offer kids is to help cope with other um, risk factors that are happening even before that transition starts. Perfect. Uh, we're almost out of time here, but uh, real quickly, Joel, before we let you go, uh, if you're still looking to connect with some families and, and include them in your study, is there a place they can go to kind of get some information or perhaps get in touch with you guys? That would be wonderful, yes. Um, families can visit our website at startinghighschool.ca um, and learn a little bit more about our study and what it means to participate. Um, and we really, um, we couldn't do this without our families that um, generate are generous with their time. And so uh, that would be great for those families who are interested. Perfect. Uh, Joelle, thank you so much for taking some time this morning. It sounds like a fascinating bit of research, and I'm really curious to see uh, what it results in down the road here.
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We, we will definitely keep everyone in the loop with them as the results start coming in. Sounds great. Uh, that's Joelle Lamolt. Uh, she is the assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at UBC as they begin a study to determine the impacts on the mental health of kids as they transition from grade 7 to grade 8. Uh, fascinated to see where that goes in a couple of years. That's it for today's Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL. Same time tomorrow. Where the interior stays connected. This is CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. Radio NL, 610 AM. Local News Now.